Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Livin' the Bream with host of Fox News at Night, Shannon Bream. All right, everybody is stuck at home, working from home. We've got a lot of essential workers who are out there, first responders, um, medical workers, all kinds of people spread everywhere. But they all have similar questions about COVID-19. We have asked back our favorite doctor, Dr. Steve Weinberg, who is a professor. He's an attorney. He is a medical doctor. He's an entrepreneur. He does it all. And I don't think he's going to send me a bill for this episode of Living the Brain, but he's here to answer your questions. Dr. Weinberg, welcome. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Now, listen, tell us a little bit more about your background because you have served uh, in a number of positions where you've been exposed to these kinds of things like questions about immunology and epidemiology and handling a crisis like this. Give us a little background. Okay. Well, I, uh, I spent five years in the Bush administration under President George W. Bush. He pointed me to help him over at the Peace Corps between 2001 and 2006. And little did I know when I accepted that position that we were going to have the first SARS epidemic in China. We had over 100 volunteers in China when it broke out. And I had to to handle that and work with them and and make decisions about what we're going to do with those volunteers. And then all of the volunteers in Africa, about over 2,000, were involved in the HIV crisis in which in Africa was, was killing people right and left. And I got involved in that. And then we had volunteers up in the equatorial French West Africa where Ebola broke out. So I became, plus we had malaria everywhere, I became an expert in in these epidemics. And one of the wonderful things, I mentioned several of those, Dr. Burks was heavily involved in the HIV work in Africa and the president's, uh, the PEPFAR, where we, he put $10 billion into Africa. And Dr. Fauci, in his ID position, was very involved with the original SARS. So I had the pleasure of listening to them uh, 18 years ago. Uh, they were brilliant then, they're brilliant now. Uh, and it's, uh, it really uh, has been a tremendous aid for me because when this came about, it was a little bit of deja vu. I was right back in the middle of it. Well, we're thankful that you are because you have spent a lot of time on our show, Fox News at night, 11 o'clock, Monday through Friday, Eastern, uh, and now giving us your time on the podcast. And you fielded a ton of questions. And we asked folks on Twitter, on Facebook, um, all different places, if they would give us some questions. And you were such a good sport that you said, yes, you didn't cross any of them off the list. So we'll try to get to as many as we can. Okay, let's start with Uh-Oh Chongo. I don't know what that is all about. It says, we've been told a vaccine will not be produced for another 12 to 18 months. And we've also been told that there's a fast track for a vaccine this year. What is fact versus hope? And this is something the president talked about the other night that he really is pushing private and public industry and everybody to work together to try to get this done ASAP. Well, I love this whole idea about vaccine questions. It's phenomenally important. It's what's going to hopefully wipe this disease off the planet. So let's, let's separate fact from fiction. Generally speaking, 18 months would be a very fast getting a vaccine. 
six, seven years is more like what it did. But we're, we have got the greatest scientists in the world working on this. We have over a hundred different companies, uh, academic institutions, big pharma, governments, all working to create a vaccine. They've got a huge start and they've made some, some great advances already. Generally, there's three phases. You test it on animals and you test it on people for safety. Then you test it to see if it's going to be efficacious, if it's going to work. Does it really help and stop something? And then you, you produce it. Well, one of the things that's being done that's cutting a year off of this is these companies are taking a big chance, taking a big bite out of their finances. But while they're doing phase one and two, they think they have a vaccine that might work. They're producing it. You just can't make a vaccine and then suddenly have 10 million doses of it. So they're making it. And if it turns out in, in six months, five months, three months, like the Oxford one in England, that it's working, they will have the vaccine ready to give inoculations. This will save a, a six months to a year right there. Plus, these different companies using different types of vaccines. Some are using a, an attenuated virus, the virus itself that they make weaker. Some are using a dead virus. They take the virus and kill it if there is such a thing and using it. Some are taking little parts of the virus. Uh, the latest one uh, today, uh, Pfizer announced theirs. They're taking a little piece of the RNA from the virus and, and going after. So they've got all these different methods. And I really feel strongly something's going to work. Now, we don't have one, a vaccine against the cold virus. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of coronaviruses. So people are saying, well, it's not going to work because you can't get it you know, against a cold. There's 200 plus cold viruses. And they mutate like crazy. So we can't, we don't have one. We're hoping a couple of things, and it'll work in this case, if the coronavirus that we're dealing with now doesn't mutate tremendously between now and the fall. If so the one we're making a, a vaccine against is still effective in the fall, we'll have a vaccine. Plus, what, what, what you do when you test it in patients, you give them the shot or two shots, a month later, you draw blood and you see, did they, did they make an antibody? That's number one. So you go, oh boy, they, three or four have made antibodies. doesn't tell you it's going to stop the, the virus from infecting their body though. So the next thing you have to do with volunteers, people who are probably going to be exposed to this virus, and half of them get a placebo and half of them get the, the, uh, the vaccine, and a month later, you see which ones have the disease. And that's really the only way you can tell if it's going to work. I mean, that's terrifying. People actually have to be willing to be exposed to, infected yeah. by the coronavirus as part of the study. Yes, it's, it's frightening from the beginning. These volunteers right now that are getting the, the safety, they're getting a vaccine. Mm. And if it's an attenuated virus or a virus or part of it, that's why you do the safety first in little bitty doses and find out what the complications yeah. are. Yes, well, they listen, are wonderful. I'm adding them to the list of heroes because there's a growing list of people who are heroic in this situation and people who are willing to be part of these vaccine trials for the rest of us. I mean, they really are. Um, what would you need to see? Doctor? By the way, I'm hopeful that we really will have a vaccine by this fall. Wow. That is lightning speed. Yeah. What would you need to see as a physician yourself to be comfortable taking the vaccine? Well, the once the efficacy done, I feel comfortable uh, with a vaccine. The next step, though, is the vaccine actually going to be effective. Mm -hmm. Now we've got it. The safety is it going to be effective. And, you know, I when, when, it, when the safety tests are done and there's 
fora, I mean, already in this country going on and in England and in Australia, we'll have a pretty good uh, handle on safety if they don't already. I think some of these folks may be done with the safety and moving on to see if it's going to create antibodies. Wow, that's very encouraging news. Um, I kind of, I, this is interesting. We qu- covered this a few weeks back on the show. There were questions because there were a number of lawmakers, um, Democrats, who were pushing for the use of um, fetal tissue for some of these studies. Now, I have the pro-life groups who come to me and say there's no major cure or vaccine or anything that's ever been developed that had to depend on fetal tissue. Um, but these you know, lawmakers saying we're wasting time. It's something that we could be using. Um, what's your take on that, whether we need to go that path or not? Don't need to go that path. There's never been a vaccine created from fetal tissue uh, it's it's silly. I mean, it's it's just uh, uh, the, the political ping pong ball. The the vaccines are created now in a laboratory uh, chemically, not with tissue, but chemically by breaking down this virus, by killing the virus, by attenuating the virus, by taking parts of the virus. It has nothing to do with fetal tissue, and then they take that put it in animals, see if that creates an antibody. Then they use the safety test in people. Actually, some of the ways they're cutting little time is they're doing the animal testing, the people testing at the same time. You talk about heroes. Mm -hmm. I would like to take a shot that the the rabbit next to you was getting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I'm not volunteering biscuit bream and I'm not volunteering myself right now. We'll see how this goes. By the way. um, No need for fetal tissue. Okay. So Scipio, Arizona, by the way, is one who asked about that as well. Um, There are also questions, this one says from Kelly M, if we have a vaccine that takes roughly a year to get to market, won't we have herd immunity established at that point? We've heard a lot about this concept of herd immunity. How would that work? How long would it take? Does it mean tons of extra people are going to get infected and possibly more deaths? Well, herd immunity works. We know that. For example, measles. When a population, children get inoculated and it gets over 90 to 95%, somewhere in that range of children, if a child isn't inoculating, gets measles, you're not going to spread it very far. So we know that herd immunity works. People are talking about, in this case, maybe 70% would work. Probably wouldn't. Probably needs to be a little higher. But that would mean millions and millions of people being infected, uh, most of whom, as you know and most of us have heard now, most people don't know they're infected. A whole lot of these folks are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. So if we could test everybody and we had a good serology test, Mm -hmm. uh, we could find out how many people actually have been exposed and have a, a, an antibody, but we're right back to where I was a couple minutes ago. Are those antibodies effective in keeping them from, from getting infected again? We don't know that yet. So the herd immunity is a great theory. If you have measles, not sure it's going to work for coronavirus at this point in time. We'll have more live in the bream in a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, let's go on to some of the drug questions because every couple of weeks, it seems like we hear something new that may be tested around the globe that may be hopeful. The FDA has done this emergency uh, authorization use for remdesivir. I'm learning how to pronounce all kinds of other things um, that rolls, uh, they roll off the tongue for you doctors. 
Um, yeah. Blake Griffin, and I'm told by the wonderful Anna, my assistant, that this is not the NBA's Blake Griffin. I don't know. Maybe he listens to Live in the Brain. Anyway, he says, if your loved one was in the early to mid stages of this virus with a grim prognosis, what would be your drug or combination of drugs of choice? I believe that, that she knows what she's talking about because I've said from the beginning it's going to take a combination of drugs. It'd be wonderful if, if an antiviral were one of the drugs. Remdesivir is an antiviral. Uh, it's, it's, it has shown some benefit. How much, we don't know. Uh, these were pretty sick people that were on it. If you remember when they did that study, the people that were on it were doing better than the people who were, were, were not on it. So they broke the study. They ethically had to do that and give the remdesivir to the people who, who had not been getting it. It probably works as an antiviral, kills the virus. Uh, but they were also on uh, some sort of immune blocker because it's not just the virus. We found this out pretty early. It's killing people. Virus goes into the lungs, reproduces, destroys the lungs, but it's turned out that the cytokines, your own body, comes up with antibodies to kill that virus. We call them cytokines. And they're going in there and they're killing the virus and they're killing the patient. They are so overwhelming. And this virus is getting into, into blood vessels. People are having heart attacks and strokes and losing extremities and their kidneys are shutting down because of all the, these effects between the the blood vessels and the cytokines. So it's going to take an antiviral and something that, that affects the immune system to prevent the cytokine and storm. And that's what the folks are getting. The fact that remdesivir worked or seemed to work in some people, it's, it's so good news beyond remdesivir because now we know that there's an antiviral that works and the laboratories and the science can come up with other, other antivirals first antiviral 30 years ago uh, worked a little bit in one disease and more and more and more and more came out. Uh, so there'll be other antivirals and I think each one will get better and better. So it's not just the remdesivir. There'll be better antivirals. There'll be better treatment for the cytokine and storm and it'll take a combination more than likely. But can I add something else? Yes, please. We really need an early therapeutic. These drugs we're talking about are for the people who are sick in hospital who may be about to be put on or on a ventilator. What we need is something like Tamiflu. If you get the flu, you go to the doctor, first 48 hours, he does a swab, does a quick test. Yeah, you got type A flu. He writes your prescription for Tamiflu. And you know what? You either get well or you attenuate, you, you make the disease not so bad. So instead of having it for two weeks, you have it for four days. We need a, a Tamicorona and I mean, that, that's, that sounds amazing. And I'm, I'm sure I feel like every day and I know you read medical journals and papers and peer reviewed things and not peer reviewed. Like, you know, it's been interesting to hear that there are sort of collections of medical professionals online who share information with each other. It hasn't gotten to the stage of an FDA approval or something, but just trying to share like this might work. This is working with my patients. I mean, I know people are constantly trying to get ahead of this. And it's amazing to see the entire world working on this and, and trying to instead of I think there are those who are competitive, like we got to beat the U.S. at this. I'm sure China would like to. Um, but there seems to be a lot of um, sharing of information and research uh, as we all try to help each other because everyone's a threat. Yes, you are 100% correct. Now, I happen to be familiar with UT Southwestern since I train there and I talked to a professor today. They have several hundred COVID patients at Parkland Hospital and every single one of them 
is in a clinical trial mm. of various drugs. And that's one academic medical center. So what you're saying, you're saying this much, maybe not even realizing it's, you know, it's well, huge. I'm sure every academic medical center is doing that. And now remdesivir, for example, is an IV form. It isn't something we can pop a pill and you've got the antivirus. Right. So they're, they're just test. I don't of 200 patients over there and they're coming and going. Uh, the person, the professor I talked to, didn't even know how many studies, but every single one of them is in a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. Well, it's amazing because people who have gone through this especially are, they seem so thankful to survive it. And now they want to be out there donating plasma, doing whatever they can. Um, and of course, you know, thanks to these people who are willing to do the trials as well. Um, I want to ask you about, there's been so much fighting over the data, the projections, 2 million people in the U.S. are going to die, 60,000, 100,000. And, you know, people get very frustrated because I feel like many of them are tired of being scared and they don't know what they can trust and what they need to brace for and what's, you know, fact and what's fiction. Kathy Randall tweets us in, um, nobody has faith in the actual death toll. How many deaths were not from the virus, but were counted? How will we ever trust the true figures? Many family members, doctors, and morticians have spoken up. And we've heard this anecdotally. I don't know what you hear in the medical community about. We've heard doctors talking about being pressured, that if it's possible COVID was part of the diagnosis. There was a huge jump in New York when they added three or four more thousand people to the role. So folks don't want to feel like they're being played. They, hey, if it's that bad, they do want to know, but they're just not sure. Yeah, that's, you know, we're, we're all a little leery of the figures, but it's not the people we're coming out with those figures fall. I, I hate to say this, but I signed death certificates. And unless I had an autopsy on a patient, it was always my best guess mm -hmm. uh, based on everything I knew about the patient. Uh, and in, in this situation, there's a lot of folks, or there's folks with what we call presumptive diagnosis. If they died of something, but the family says, well, he was at home with 103 fever and cough and it wasn't breathing very well, but he got run over by a car on the way to the hospital. Uh, they're signing it out as a, as a, a coronavirus death. I don't think there are many of those that are showing up in statistics enough to change the ultimate data. I think there probably are some, but there's probably some that die of coronavirus that we don't get either. Probably balances out. The data that we're getting, these, these basis of, of things we're getting, I kind of compare it to a, to a weatherman. You know, he's trying to tell us the weather two days from now uh, from some, some chart that he's got with radar and fronts and all that sort of stuff. And he says it's going to rain in two days. Two days from now, it's beautiful. His data, his result, his prediction's only as good as the data he had. And are the models they're doing are getting better and better because we're getting more data. We have, they started out, we had a couple of hundred cases and a few deaths and, and they were plugging them in. They have an algorithm and they were way off. And it was before we were doing the mitigation. Mm -hmm. And now with mitigation, we have a much better handle how many people are getting clinically sick. Now, half the people aren't clinically sick. So we know half the, how many are getting clinically sick. We know how many hospitalizations. We know how many deaths, pretty close to an accurate number. And you're plugging these numbers in, the algorithms then churn them out like a computer does and comes up with, with pretty good data, but it isn't any, it isn't really a whole lot better than the weatherman trying to predict the weather two days from now. Yeah. And these models are all different and it's what you put in. It's the software that you're using. Um, so we take everything with a grain of salt. We know the numbers that are being reported. And like you said, we have to assume that people are trying their best, but they're not always going to be perfect and accurate. 
And look at look at the denominator. How many that bottom right. number? How many have it? Uh, I don't think if, if we had a chance to talk about some of these serologies out there, the serologies are coming out so far. Mm-hmm. The, last, the ones a week or two ago weren't very good. And right. is it really ten times what we see, or is it fifty times what we see? That's pretty bad science. Right. It's hard to know. Um, okay, so I want to talk about serology, but first masks, because we get so many questions about this. People feel like they've gotten conflicting information. There's yours. I can see you on our Zoom call. <laughs> I can see yours. Um, okay, so Jeffrey uh, Jungbauer says this. I'm starting to see more and more mask shaming. I personally don't wear a mask in public. It is my understanding that masks are not a substitute for social social distancing. So when people try to mask shame me, I try to remind them of this. Has the recommendation changed regarding masks? What should we know? Well, the CDC changed their recommendation, and that's what got everybody kind of blown away. First, they said masks won't do any good. Social distancing is what we need, and that's true. The mask, probably the way we wear them, and the masks we have do not protect you from somebody's virus coming to you. They cough or sneeze. You know what my advice is? You around somebody that cough or sneeze, run like crazy. <laughs> What's coming towards you, those droplets go through those masks. This virus is so tiny that to see it, we see all these pictures of it. To see it, we blow it up 250,000 times. Whoa. Yeah, that's how tiny it is. So it goes right through the mask. The mask is to protect other people from you. When you're coughing or sneezing or talking and you're, you're putting out virus, the mask is hopefully preventing as much of the virus from you going to other people. So it does help you. doesn't replace social distancing, but it should protect other people from you. So I wear a mask when I'm out. But, of course, I love my mask. I grew up in a mask. You know how many <laughs> tens of thousands of surgeries I did? And I wore a mask every day for 20 years. Uh, I put a mask on a couple of weeks ago when they said wear a mask and I looked around for my scalpel. You were ready to go back in I action. About, I was, I was about ready to operate on my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Vicky. Yeah. Okay. Um, now back to the serology test, because I've read several in-depth pieces recently that say most of them out there are complete junk. I mean like 90 some tests that the last article that I read and they said maybe three or four of them have FDA approval now, the FDA is trying to help people, so they're rushing them out and saying, like, you have to certify the results, that kind of thing. Now I hear the FDA is getting a lot tougher, cracking down, because people falsely think they have antibodies. And like you said, we don't know that that makes you immune or for how long. Um, if we're using that for people to think they're making decisions about visiting family members, older family members, going back to work, what they can do, um, it seems preposterous that these are all floating around out there. John Hillier asked, my medical question is about the antibody test. When will the test become more reliable? Now, Mr. Bream has his annual physical this week, and he's already asked um, his doctor if he could get one of the FDA-approved antibody tests. He said, I'm not going to mess with the other stuff. Um, But what should we know? Because, I mean, it seems like a big tool for getting people back to some kind of normalcy. One came out today from Roche, a claim, and Roche did the testing that their sensitivity and specificity, and I'll explain that in a second, are fantastic. Okay. Uh, but they did the testing. I would love to see more than Roche doing their own testing. Here's the deal. on and Those are the two words you hear, specificity and sensitivity, and who knows what that is. That, that's not common vernacular. Specificity is something specific. So we want the test to only pick up this coronavirus, but we have a lot of coronaviruses. 
We've all had colds with coronaviruses. If, if it's not 100% specific, and none of them have been yet, then it could well be picking up the cold virus you had last year or last 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So they're not 100%. And sensitivity is how sensitive it, it is to that particular coronavirus. Maybe you have to have, pick a number, a million viruses to make it sensitive. But you only have uh, 500,000. So it's not going to pick it up. It's going to say, you don't, you don't have an antibody, and you do. Mm. You're not picking it up. Or on the other side, it may be picking up your cold virus, and it's saying, well, everybody's got an Im- immunization, and they don't. So the sensitivity and specificity, specific, you know what I'm saying, it's, uh, they have to be 100% for those tests to be reliable. Mm-hmm. And to date, even the FDA ones are not 100% reliable. I hope this Roche one gets there. All right, we'll stand by. Or right, you have a final question that comes to us from AJ. Here's a question for the doctor. What do you do to get away from all the COVID talk when you need a break? Do you watch Friends reruns, Wheel of Fortune? What is it? All the questions I've heard, that now becomes <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> Thanks, AJ. I happen to be pretty lucky uh, in a way. My kids are grown. I don't have to do homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do my own schooling. I'm teaching. So that takes up a lot of my time. But I don't have to homeschool. Uh, I'm not alone. I have a wonderful wife. We, we probably spent more time together in the last two months than we have since our honeymoon or did a lot more than our honeymoon. You know, that lasted a week. And we've gotten along pretty well. Probably the biggest arguments we have are over what shows we're going to watch on Netflix or, oh. or or Prime or Apple TV, whatever. I want to watch one series. She wants to watch another. Some recommendations. So, <laughs> yes, I'll tell you after we get <laughs> off. Uh, I do. Now we've we've gone through Mrs. Maisel and and several of the others, and and uh, but watching reruns. When I'm kind of like I love to read. And mm-hmm. I do read medical journals and these, these, these things on COVID. I probably read 25 a day. And I read novels. I read, I'm finishing up Joel Rosenberg's oh, latest novel. So good. Yeah, yeah. I've got to sit right in front of me, The Jerusalem Assassin. Yeah. i got to finish it. This COVID thing's taking up too much time. Yeah. Uh, so you, I, I played a few holes of golf today. You've got to stay busy. If you stay and sit in your house and stare out the window, uh, you're going to go wacky. You're, you're going to get COVID fever. Uh, and I'm not sure that's been described yet, but lots of people are getting it. I, that's why people are out uh, picketing some of our state capitals saying, we got to get back to work. Uh, you've got to find something to do. And I've been lucky that so far that I found, uh, I found a lot of things to do. And I think most people do or will. They have hobbies. They, they, our dog got to the point where she doesn't even want to walk anymore. She's been on I so know. Ours that. is looking at us like, Give me a break here, people. Yeah, I got to rest today. <laughs> got to find something, and all of us do. I think it's really important that we uh, that we stay busy, we stay active, we keep our brains our brains working. Well, thank you. We have so many more questions. Tell us you'll come back again soon because it is so helpful and generous of you to give your time. We appreciate it. I, I love it and enjoy being with you, Shannon. And uh, Kim, I just look forward to, to being back again. I know. Hopefully we'll see you in person again soon. Thank you, Dr. Steve Weinberg, and hello to the family. 
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.